Good evening. Uh, if you have been here this semester, then you know that uh, we have been working through the parables in Luke as part of our ongoing series, uh, Parables, Simple Stories with Spiritual Significance. I'm not trying to put this. There it is. Oh, that's a little more. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at Luke 16, 19 through 31. Um, if you have your Bibles, you have the sheet. It's printed there on the back. Uh, it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. As we look at that, we're going to notice that one of the key themes in this parable is uh, the concept of greatness. Uh, tonight, uh, um, oh yeah, is greatness. Um, it, and honestly, this is an appropriate theme for us to discuss as a culture, right? Uh, because it's something that we as humans all kind of wrestle with. We all want to be great, uh, and uh, we make a habit of, of recognizing greatness. Like This is something that we practice every day in our culture. Uh, we have award shows for music and TV and movies, and every good sports season, um, at least everyone that I've ever heard of, uh, ends with like somebody being crowned champion and like, you know, confetti's falling from the rafter, rafters, and, like, even if you're not on that team, we, there's usually, like, MVP voting for somebody who, like, maybe was on a bad team, but they're just really, really good, and you just want to recognize their greatness. Uh, there are whole blogs, I researched this, there are whole blogs that are actually uh, set to um, count uh, how many Instagram followers uh, certain people have, like, the top 10 Instagram, like, influencers, um, and so like you can go online and like watch their, like the, the exact number of their Instagram followers, like slowly tick up. Um, so that's a whole like other thing about like what it means to be great. Uh, maybe some people think that that's what greatness is. Um, even in dating and romance, uh, we have like TV shows like the bachelor and the bachelorette where, um, one person in all of America is identified as the most like eligible, most attractive, most like um, I don't know, worthy person of love in all of uh, America. And everyone, like 40 people, just clamor over each other to like win this person's affection. Um, we like think about greatness a lot, and we recognize it a lot, um, and we want it deep down. Even uh, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who's a great philosopher in his own right, um, and uh, he's really famous for declaring that God is dead, right, <laughs> as an atheist. He wrote a book about great, uh, he wrote about greatness in his book, untimely meditations. He said, mankind must work continually at the production of individual great men. That and nothing else is its task. Mankind must work continually at the production of individual great men. And that is its only task. Um, so even he agrees, like, this is what life is about, right? Uh, if you're a devout atheist or a believer, uh, there's kind of a, a truth universally recognized that greatness is at least one goal of the human life. The way place where everyone differs, though, is what that greatness looks like. Does it look like being crowned the bachelor, or uh, does it look like winning a Nobel Peace Prize in science, right? I mean, some people would say one of those is a lot uh, more indicative of greatness than the other, um, and I won't tell you uh, which person is who, right? Uh, so who decides what greatness is? That's the question. That's something that we really drink all the time. People are telling us this is what greatness is, and if we haven't got it straight in our heads... Uh, we're liable to believe the wrong things. And so in our par parable tonight, Jesus is going to illustrate the spiritual reality of greatness with a simple story. The simple story. He's going to make the claim of what greatness truly is. Uh, so that will be our question uh, tonight as we dive into this passage. What is greatness? That's the one thing that you're going to hang your hat on all, all evening. We're going we're to look at this question. What is greatness? 
Let's, lead, let's read Luke 16, 19 through 31 together and find out. Okay, uh, I'm going to step out of the way of that. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, uh, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Uh, God, um, we long to be great. Uh, We think about it a lot and care about it a lot. Uh, Will you show us in your word tonight what that looks like? Uh, How you define human greatness and how we can achieve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's dive into our passage here and discover the answer to our question, what is greatness? Look with me. Let's start in verses 19 through 22, the very, the very beginning. Jesus first depicts like this unnamed rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen. So first thing that we should know is that purple in the ancient world is a very, very expensive, very, very rare color to have uh, as clothing. Um, it can actually only be obtained through one measure at that point, Um, extreme measure, uh, you'd actually have to die for a small snail that existed in the sea near Tyre, uh, like Tyre and Sidon, like in the ancient, uh, uh, near the ancient Mediterranean. Uh, And there was a sea snail there, and if you crushed it, it could produce purple dye. That's that's how you got uh, dye. Um, A scientist tried to recreate this same uh, dye. It took 5,500 snails to dye a handkerchief, like a handkerchief, purple. Um, It was a very, very arduous process. Um, And this man is said to be clothed in purple and fine linen. Um, It's extremely uh, impressive. Uh, In fact, uh, this phrasing uh, of being clothed in purple and fine linen is actually borrowed uh, directly from Proverbs 31.22, where it's used there to uh, describe a king. Uh, it's uh, the point that Jesus is making about this guy right from the get-go is that this king, or sorry, this rich man, he lives like a king. He, in all ways, seems like a very kingly person. He has the lifestyle status and power of a king. Jesus also provides us with the detail that this rich man feasted sumptuously every day. Literally, the Greek reads that the rich man splendidly was making merry daily. Like that's, it's just like 
one after another of, uh, of like words about how lavish this man's lifestyle is. And not only does the rich man live this kingly lifestyle, he's making, like, not only does he enjoy the fruits of this kingly lifestyle, he is making the most of it, right? Then in verse 20, Jesus introduced us to a poor man named Lazarus, who's covered with sores, which seems to be a direct contrast, right? With the purple that this kingly rich man is, is clothed in, this man is clothed in sores. Uh, and he is placed... Uh, outside the gate to the rich man's house, right, would have been in view of him. Every day he would, have, he would have walked in and out of this gate and would have seen this man standing here. And it says that this Lazarus is uh, longing to eat literally any of the things that fell from the rich man's table, uh, which also tells us that these banquets that the rich man is throwing, right, are so lavish that the food that gets knocked off the table and not picked up is so much so that it could, like, it could actually feed a man. Uh, on top of all this, uh, these dogs, uh, these are not like these are not your like pet puppy that's like cute and things. Uh, he's placed outside the gate of this house, so these are like wild dogs that would have roamed the streets at the time. And these dogs come and they lick Lazarus's sores. Uh, when the poor man dies, uh, Jesus notes that there is no one to bury him. So he just gets taken up straight to heaven. Uh, the rich man, by contrast, he receives a funeral. Uh, you probably could not pick a more stark picture of somebody who has and someone who has not. And, and what are we to make of this initial scene, this, this contrast? Well, it gives us at least the first answer to our question, what is greatness? Well, on earth, it's pleasure and power. It's pleasure and power. On, on earth, it's pleasure and power. Um, this, this rich man um, is depicted as, as having tons of pleasure and power while Lazarus has none. Basically, everything is the opposite uh, of this rich man's life. Um, but here's the problem. A pursuit of one's own greatness inevitably hurts others. This is also present in this, in this first scene, right? Yes, on earth, like greatness, this man who's dressed like a king, what kingly rule looks like is like this man. And yet... Uh, his pursuit of his own greatness, his pursuit of his own comfort and pleasure ultimately hurts others. Uh, hoarding pleasure and power will blind us to the pain of other people, uh, just as it did to this rich man, uh, just as it did for this rich man to Lazarus. Um, when I worked at a camp um, in Black Mountain, North Carolina, we used to play this game called Commando. Um, and essentially, uh, what would happen in this game is uh, you would take a water balloon from one end of a field and dodging these things called these like people you give it like two like 10 year old boys are given socks and they would throw them at you and if you dodge the sock then you get kept running and you tried to like the end goal would be you take your uh your water balloon and you would literally bust it on the body aka the face of a 16 year old boy that has been just a nuisance to you all summer long um, not really. We loved all of them. But also, you threw it a little harder at the ones you didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, so the, so the, the, this is the whole goal of this game. Uh, and you're trying to avoid the socks because if a sock hits you, then you have to throw your balloon on the ground and bust it. And you have to go stand in front of the people that are getting thrown the water balloons at. And so, like, you get pelted with the water balloons as well. Um, and so uh, that's the whole point of the game. Uh, when you run out of water balloons, you're done. That's kind of the end of the game. 
But at some point, uh, uh, you do run out of water balloons, you realize that. And so I got it in my head, you know what I'm going to do? Um, occasionally somebody, especially like the younger kids that are like six or seven, will throw a water balloon and it'll hit like the body of somebody and then it'll just like bounce on the ground and just stay there. So I'm like, I'm going to go like, like get one of these water balloons and like salvage it somehow. Um, usually from my own side, like somebody's going to throw one at one of our guys and then I can just like hold on to it. The problem with that is that um, if you've ever had a hundred water balloons being thrown at your face at one time, you tend to move around a lot. And um, if the balloon is on the ground and I am jumping on it and then holding, covering it up, and you are moving around a lot, uh, you normally just kind of like smush my face in the ground, which is what happened. Um, as I like saw a balloon in the ground, I jumped on it and I'm just getting like pushed into the mud. And then the onslaught's over. I'm sitting there. I have the balloon. And uh, I, decide, I like go over and I give it to the, like, the least suspecting kid in our whole camp. Um, he's like eight years old. His name was Paul, and I said, Paul, the last hope of the Seminoles is our tribe. The last hope of the Seminoles is in your hands. Don't blow this. And he's like, I won't let you down. And he like, you know, we all run over, and everybody's acting like they have the water balloon. Um, When I ran across, I knew that this would happen. Immediately, one of these stingers, one of these kids with a sock, comes running at me, and I, like, dodge it or whatever. Um, And I told the other kid, this Paul character, uh, I told him to run like away from me so that if he threw the sock, he wouldn't be able to pick it up and then hit him in the same moment. You got to like get far away from me. He'll throw the sock and I'll be a decoy. Well, he throws the sock and it like hits me actually. Like I don't dodge it. I remember now. I, I don't dodge it. It hits me square in the chest. And I'm like, I don't have a balloon. So nothing happens. Like, sorry. And uh, the, the sock is sitting like right here. And then I notice out of the corner of my eye, Paul is literally just running like right behind me. And so the kid, the stinger, like sees the sock on the ground, sees Paul with the balloon. He's not even hiding it. He's like, I got it, guys. Like, and I, I see it on the ground. And I look, at, I look at Paul and I look at the sock and I look at Paul and I look at the sock. And the kid's like reaching down to get it. He's, gonna pe- he's for sure going to pick Paul. And so I just rear back and I just like punt this thing. Like as far as I, like it's clear over the mountain. And um, uh, like, uh, Paul runs past, busts like a balloon on the body of like one of these singers, gets his points, and we're all like cheering and, and like, yes, like I have done it, you know, like my plan worked. And then I look over and this stinger is weeping, like just completely losing it. Like, Whoa, I, yeah. and I was like, oh no, I have made a severe miscalculation. Um, this is kind of uh, like, this is kind of the, the point of like what happens when we pursue our, our own greatness. Um, when you pursue your own means, you inevitably like end up kicking socks. Like that's what happens. Um, in a way, in this way, like we're all like this rich man and we're blind to others' pain. Um, here's the hard part though. I could see it on the kid's face uh, after I kicked his sock. But uh, for you, it's a lot harder because the premise is that you would naturally be blind to this sort of thing. Um, so you have to ask yourself instead of like, where am I causing people pain? You have to ask yourself, where are you pursuing your own greatness? Where is that happening for you? And it, it's probably not in getting rich like the parable uh, because, you know, you're all poor college kids. Uh, but maybe you pursue it some other way. Like, for instance, maybe you pursue it in sexual prowess, right? If you hook up with guys or girls, you get some amount of affirmation. They're telling you you're great. Um, they're seeing you for all of who you are. 
and then uh, you receive from them the praise of, of, you know, who you really are underneath everything. Um, And you might claim this is two consenting adults, so it doesn't matter, but, like, the reality is, like, in that moment, you promise, like, you are promising to that person that you accept all of them. You know, like, you're writing that promise physically to this person that you accept all of who they are, um, and, and, and you do that in their most vulnerable moment, and then you say, never mind. Um, and that inevitably hurts that person. Um, you also might do this, like, another way that this is a very popular way we do this today is through pornography. Uh, I don't, I haven't talked a lot about that this semester, because, like, your college kids get inundated with these kinds of things, probably. But uh, unlike actually hooking up with someone, um, this pursuit of greatness, it, like, it feeds us this lie that, like, no one else is being hurt by this thing, uh, that no one else is involved in, like, the collateral damage. You're not engaging with another person who then feels, like, put off by you if you reject them. Um, but the problem is, and, like, well, and, and this is the reality of, like, the greatness that it promises, is, like, in porn world, everyone will tell you that you're great, right? No one will tell you that you're ugly or terrible unless you want them to. Like, the... The thing is, like, nobody can tell you anything bad about you unless you, uh, you give them permission. You, everyone in this world exists for your, your pleasure, um, to make you the center of attention, to make you great. Um, you control everyone's actions. Uh, but the reality is, like, what about those men and women behind the lens, right? Um, what, and what's watching, what is watching that doing to your heart? and to your commitments that you could make to your future spouse, it's slowly poisoning you um, and poisoning maybe even your future marriage. Um, if that's you, I, w- I will say this. Uh, I encourage you to talk to somebody about that. You can talk to me. You can talk to Maddie. Um, we would love to engage with you in your story in that. Um, but this is, like, this is what happens, right? When we seek our own greatness um, in ways that we don't see right off, like it's not clear to us, uh, we end up hurting other people. Um, because, uh, and this is, this is the truth, uh, the, because the pursuit of our own greatness is ult- ultimately a selfish endeavor, right? The, the pursuit of our own greatness is a, is a selfish endeavor, and so when we make greatness our goal, people become obstacles, right? When you make greatness your goal, people become obstacles, um, to what, and, and they become obstacles because what you really love is you. You can't love other people. You love you. Um, so then how do we get the greatness that we desire? That's the question uh, that's still lingering here. Well, look with me at verses 23 through 25. Once in hell, right, once this rich man dies, um, he has to come to terms with the life he's lived, right? He, he's judged for what he's done. And justice is served as the rich man is sent to a place of torment to the, to the point that he asks for just a drop of water from Lazarus's finger to cool his tongue in the flames, uh, you'll note the irony that it's now the rich man who is begging for the scraps from Lazarus's finger, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's the rich man who is begging uh, for Lazarus's scraps for a drop of water from his finger. Um, this is perfect poetic justice. And Abraham is pictured there conversing with the rich man. As the patriarch of Israel, uh, he's like an appropriate character to read in the story. It's like the one person that no one would be surprised is in heaven, right? If you're listening to the story, they're like, right, Abraham, father of Israel, like he's in heaven, got it. Uh, so he gets to be the authority figure that Jesus, is, Jesus uses 
to tell about how heaven and hell works. This isn't, again, this is a good time to say that these are like stories, right? This is an actual episode that happened. Um, but he says Abraham, he gives this fictional account of how Abraham's talking to this uh, rich man, Lazarus, and he puts on the, uh, uh, this rich man with Lazarus at his side, and he puts on the lips of Abraham uh, how perfect God's justice really is. He says this in verse 25, after the rich man's request for water, Abraham responds, child, remember because he is Abraham's child, uh, outwardly, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. The script for greatness has been flipped, right? Uh, perfectly inverted. In heaven, the weak are made strong, the poor are made rich, the lowly are made great. Uh, this is our second answer to our question, what is greatness? In heaven, it's, it's poverty and powerlessness. In heaven, greatness is poverty and powerlessness. So on earth, it's pleasure and power, but in the eyes of God... Greatness is poverty and powerlessness. Uh, in fact, uh, you'll notice that when Jesus tells this story, he names Lazarus and not the rich man. He doesn't even dignify the rich man with a name. And Lazarus is the only person in any parable, in any four Gospels, that actually receives a name. Uh, the dignity that God bestows upon him uh, in his poverty and powerlessness. And if we're honest, like if we really think about this, this shouldn't be that surprising to us. Uh, the king of all things... Uh, is a crucified savior. Uh, could, you know, he could have been born in a palace as a prince in some capital city somewhere, and instead he's born in a manger uh, as a peasant in some nowhere town on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Uh, could have been king over all the earth and forced everyone into submission, but instead never travels over a hundred mile radius from his hometown of Galilee and uh, was constantly misunderstood. Uh, could have given us all the punishment uh, that this rich man receives, like we deserve, and instead receives that punishment for himself as he takes his body, like the body of sin of the whole world upon his own shoulders and is crucified as a sacrifice for our sin, giving us his righteousness. Um, he is the prime picture of somebody who uh, is uh, impoverished and powerless, um, giving all those things away, but here's the catch. In all of his humiliation that Jesus endured, he was being made perfect, according to, Roman, uh, according to Hebrews 2, and is now exalted uh, at the right hand of the Father and is king over all creation. The reality of God's kingdom is the more you uh, let go of your own greatness, the more you find it. That's the, that's the reality here uh, that Jesus is depicting to us is that uh, Lazarus, this man who has nothing, is actually uh, has everything uh, in the end. Last fall, a news story made the rounds about a custodian named Herman Gordon. You may have heard of him. Um, he was at the University of Bristol in England. Herman was from Jamaica, and uh, he worked at the university for over a decade, uh, not able to see his family uh, because of the distance. Um, and a student posted on social media noticing how caring and kind uh, Herman was, how he always said encouraging things to people, how he was always very quick to like fix anything or help somebody if they ever needed anything, how he would uh, go to students who like looked like they were having a bad day and literally just try to encourage them. Um, he was a friend to so many at the university, and many of the other students felt the same way as this student who originally posted on social media. So many, in fact, 
that they decided that they wanted to serve Herman in the same way that he had served them uh, and wanted to help him revisit his birthplace of uh, Jamaica. And so a GoFundMe was started, uh, and in just a week, over $2,000 were raised for Herman to go like visit Jamaica uh, to be with his family that he hadn't seen in years, um, in a decade. Uh, Herman Gordon right, is an example of somebody who spent his life giving away his rights to his pleasure and power uh, to other people, uh, and ultimately it empowered him. Now, okay, I am not promising you that if you're nice to people, <laughs> like if you like love Jesus, people are going to give you a big sack of money. Uh, that's not really the point. And even if it worked that way, then really you just want the sack of money and not actually loving people. So that's like defeats the point. Um, but what I am saying is that the greatness that we give up our like of a that we give up for ourselves in an even greater sense uh, will be rewarded to us. Uh, that it does come back in the same way, just not maybe here on earth. Um, it comes not from students, but from God himself. He loves a humble heart, and he's promising you far more than a trip to Jamaica, right? He's not promising you a, tri- a trip to your homeland. He's promising you a trip home. Not the home that like you all came from that's not here on, at UWM's campus. I'm talking about the real home that you were made for, with him, to be with him, to know him the thing that you've always wanted. Uh, His opinion of us, his plan for us, his mercy to us, um, that's that's grace. Um, That's the grace that fuels us and allows us to give of ourselves to other people. Um, And it's the way way that we are called to live, um, is to embrace like that gift that God wants to give us, to embrace his fathership, uh, his fatherhood. Um, And uh, in that like gift, um, that we don't deserve, we can then give that same gift, that love to others. Um, the way up the ladder of greatness is down in Christ, uh, to say it shortly. But so far, uh, I've, I've ignored a major point of this parable, and I know that. Uh, and it's almost as if Jesus notices it too, right? Uh, if people really knew that greatness worked like this, right? If they were warned about the severe consequences of their sin, as it's found in this parable, wouldn't they behave differently? You know, uh, probably all of us feel the weight of the consequences of this rich man's selfishness and, like, and his trust in himself and his own greatness. He's pictured as being in some very real agony. 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 If God could somehow show people that this is where they're headed, apart from Christ, if he could really prove it to people, then they would believe. Uh, In fact, some of us might even feel it's unfair that God would send people to this place, would send people to hell, um, without making the situation more obvious uh, to our friends and family who are not believers, right? It makes us uncomfortable to see this. Uh, But look with me at uh, verses 27 through 31. Jesus does get to this point. Uh, We can notice a few things about this rich man's situation. First, I'll I'll say this really briefly. Uh, You'll notice that the rich man never once asks to come to heaven. Not once. Uh, He doesn't say, like, can I come with you? He asks Lazarus to come to him, right? And he does ask to go back to earth, but he ultimately, with the realization that, like, he'll come back to hell. Like, he doesn't want to go to heaven, Um, there's no indication that that is something that he, he desires or asks for. Um, and so this tells us something about the human condition. Uh, in Romans 1, Paul describes it like this, that God's judgment is mostly an act of giving people over to what they really desire. At some point, 
God, whether at your death or when Jesus comes back, God is going to say, if you really want your way apart from me, if you want to live your own life, have your own autonomy, do what you really want, go for it. And I won't bother you anymore. Um, one uh, theologian has put it like this. Um, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. One kind of person says, thy will be done. Or the other kind of person, uh, God says of them, thy will be done. Um, there's only two kinds. And so uh, God allows um, this rich man to have his way. Um, now, I say that, uh, and yet, like, the Bible very clearly, over and over and over again, depicts hell as a very real place that's not just, like, God being like, I'm not going to have a relationship with you anymore, but instead is, like, fiery and, and difficult uh, to live in. In Revelation 20, those who are judged um, that who are, who are not in Christ are cast into a lake of fire. Um, and we have to admit that this... Like on some level, if you, really, if, if you take it in terms of this poetic justice model, it's an appropriate punishment for people who sinned in their bodies for their bodies to be included in the punishment. That it's not just a spiritual endeavor, but that when you sin against God, you sin in a body. Um, and so he has to judge that as well, uh, what your body has done. Um, you are not just a spirit. Um, but a second uh, more important reality uh, that can be observed from this parable is this that God has already made it obvious. That God has already made it obvious. It's not, it can't get any more obvious that this is how everything ends. Um, look at verse 29. When the rich man wants to warn his brothers uh, about this coming judgment, Abraham responds, responds, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. them. God has given us his word and he's acted in human history. He's revealed himself. He's made himself known. He is given, you know, a, a tangible book that you can read anytime he wants. Uh, not everyone has even had that privilege, but you do. Um, and he has said, uh, you know, this is who I am. And he expects us to believe that. Uh, the Old Testament over and over tells us uh, that humanity has rebelled against God and that God has been on a mission from the very beginning to rescue us uh, from our own rebellion. Uh, that he, in... Genesis 3 makes a promise to uh, Eve uh, that the head of the serpent will be crushed, that this evil will eventually um, be the end. Um, he calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, I'm going to bless the whole earth through your lineage. At uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 through 24, he gives people the law that points them to the reality that they need a savior. Um, God has already communicated his gospel clearly uh, in his words and actions. And so, this is so clear that Abraham says it's not, it couldn't be any more clear even if somebody was raised from the dead. Um, they'd ignore even somebody who was resurrected. And at this point, in verse 31, at the end of the parable, you can look at it, uh, we know that Jesus is, is referring to himself. The people who are hearing this don't know yet, but we do. Because what will take place in a few short chapters is that he will uh, rise from the dead, that he will be resurrected and he'll proclaim the good news of his kingdom as people persist in unbelief. That even his, even his resurrection, that people witnessed, that people saw, it's not enough uh, for them to believe. And he makes that connection that if someone is not going to believe God's word, they're going to gonna deny his resurrection. Now, the question is, why is that? Like, why would they do that? Um, and the reality is that they go hand in hand. Because if you're going to acknowledge Jesus' resurrection, you have to acknowledge that he's king which means you're not, which would have been very offensive to the rich man, but also to all of us in our rebellion, 
right? If you don't want God's lordship, then if, you're gonna have, if you won't want the resurrection to be true, because if it is, it changes everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything about your life. He's Lord over all creation in the universe, and he deserves uh, your love um, as he's died for you. Uh, and that answers our final question. Uh, this is the final answer to our question, our ultimate answer. What is greatness? It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. That's, who, that's what greatness is. Um, it's not us. It's him. Um, on earth, it's pleasure and power. In the eyes of God, it's poverty and powerlessness. But no one exemplifies that more than Jesus. Uh, no one is, is the epitome of this kind of greatness like Jesus is. Um, as he gives up all his greatness for us, uh, all of his worthiness for our unworthiness. Um, and in that, we are supposed to worship him and love him. This is why uh, we're to obey God. This is why we are supposed to listen to Moses and the prophets. Um, Jesus is making an invitation to us at the end of this uh, parable that, um, that he will actually resurrect from the dead, that you can believe Moses and the prophets, that you can obey his word, um, you can trust him, um, and that it's because of what he's done. It's because he is the person that does get resurrected from the dead. Um, this makes me think of uh, a situation that happens a lot with small children. Um, uh, parents will often ask their small children to like clean their rooms, like you're off a five or six year old, and you say like, please clean your room, please clean your room. Um, and there are really like two types of six year olds that clean their rooms. Uh, one is the type of six year old that just cleans it when their parents ask, hey, will you clean the room? They, they clean it. The other type of six year old is, uh, will you, and this, you know, this happens. Um, <laughs> Uh, the lights are going on and off in the back. Um, the other type of six-year-old is the kid who, I'm sorry, people are like waving in the back and it's very distracting. Um, so there's uh, another type of six-year-old that has, uh, that you say like, I'll give you $5 if you clean your room. And the six-year-old naturally cleans his room or her room. And uh, one of these, like one of these kids loves his parents and one of these kids loves $5. And uh, Jesus has set up the table here so that, like, you don't have to love him. Uh, we could be tempted as we read this story to be like, okay, don't end up like this rich man. I don't want to be in hell. I don't want to do this. But Jesus is inviting us as he says, like, trust Moses and the prophets. Trust me, someone who is resurrected from the dead, um, that I have already gone before you. I already love you. That's the relationship that we have. Uh, not one where you fear hell, but one where you can love me. Um, not one where you work for $5, right? But one where you can love me. Um, just like a child who cleans his room because his parents love him and they, they just want to delight in their parents' love. Uh, that is how we worship God. Um, that's why we believe Moses and the prophets and we accept Jesus as our king. I invite you tonight to hear the invitation in this parable and to do that um, in all, all your life. Uh, let's pray.